You're listening to A Catholic Bible Study on the Gospel of Matthew with Scripture scholars Dr. Tim Gray and Dr. Michael Barber. This podcast is produced by the Augustine Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Welcome to Form Now. I'm Tim Gray, president of the Augustine Institute, and joining me is Dr. Michael Barber, who is a professor of scripture here at the Augustine Institute, and we're going to continue our ongoing Bible study on the Gospel of Matthew. Last time we left off, really in the midst of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the midst of chapter 27, and so we're going to pick up here in verse 32, and uh, you want to take us from sure. this, these next steps? Uh, yeah, so as they went out, they found a man, a man of Cyrene, uh, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Now, why are they asking somebody else to carry Jesus's cross? Again, the scourging, the, the, the torture that Jesus would have endured would have been so brutal that uh, it would not have been possible for him to do this all by himself. And so um, the fact that they asked someone else to carry his cross shows you how much suffering Jesus has already undergone mm. undergone here. And you can think about that just whenever you've done the Stations of the Cross and you get to that fifth station, which is Simon of Cyrene, helps Jesus carry the cross. And Jesus has already fallen in the Stations once before this in utter exhaustion. And so um, it really does paint how deeply he has suffered. Yes. Um, and we go on, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And why is it called the place of the skull? Well, it's probably because either it was a place of death, um, so many people died there, or perhaps the, the, the hillside looked like a skull. And there's a later tradition that it was the site of Adam's burial, but there's no evidence that that was around in Jesus's day. So most people don't think that was around in the first century. Um, but anyway, they, they, they go there and they offer him wine to drink mixed with gall. And that shouldn't be surprising to us at all because this was a common practice. Um, we know, uh, now this is a very, yeah, and we, when we spoke about this right. with, with the cup and you know, when Jesus, remember when Jesus was in the garden in Gethsemane and he says, let this cup pass. We talked about how for executions, you would oftentimes give people a cup of a strong drink, a cup of alcohol mixed with other things that would be kind of uh, intended to, in some way, uh, uh, put off the pain or dull the pain. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the pain of the crucifixion, there's not a, a tonic strong enough that's going to dull that, but go ahead. Right. And we actually read that when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. Mm -hmm. So Jesus doesn't accept that drink. He doesn't accept that that mm -hmm. comfort that's meant that they're giving him out of common courtesy. Um, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, it's a remarkable detail um, because um, Romans would have spoken of Jesus as King of the Jews. That was a, a way of addressing uh, the Jews. The Jews themselves would have used a different term. They would have used the king of Israel. Mm -hmm. So we have a little bit of historical um, accuracy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because really the account shows 
that when Gentiles are speaking to Jesus, they call him king of the Jews. But then when Jews are speaking and the Jewish chief priests, they'll refer to him as the king of Israel. That's right. And it wasn't uncommon for them to have some kind of indicator of what the charge of the executed person was here. We read that two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And of course, that reminds us of what we saw earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, where um, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and says, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able? And now, of course, he's talking to James and John because he recognizes they're the one that put up their, put their mother up to this. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And so Jesus dies uh, between two thieves and it's really these two thieves who are at his right and left when he comes into his kingdom. So the cross is his coming into his kingdom. We often think of the kingdom just in terms of glory, but that's not the case. The kingdom in Matthew is associated with suffering and death, right? Um, okay, so then moving on, we read that uh, those who passed by derided him, literally it's to blaspheme him, and they wagged their heads and they said, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. And others say, well, you know, he saved others. Can he save himself? If he's the king of Israel, notice the crowd says king of Israel. The Romans say king of the Jews. Um, then, you know, let God save him. And, 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 all, and all of this, we hear echoes of the Psalms, right? We hear echoes of, for example, Psalm 22. Um, where all who see me mock at me and they make mouths at me and they wag their heads. They say, he committed his cause to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. And of course, going on, we read that they cast lots for Jesus's garments. And in Psalm 22, we read, for raiment they cast, for my raiment they cast lots. Also, Psalm 69, they gave me poison for food for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And of course, they give Jesus to drink on the cross as well. So Jesus yeah. is bringing to fulfillment the Psalms. He really is. And I like to think of it, you know, as, as Jesus is going to quote a little bit later, you know, if you look at verse 45, now on the sixth hour, there was mm -hmm. darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, you know, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is a direct quotation from that from psalm. psalm from Psalm 22 and as Dr. Barber mentioned you know there's been several echoes to Psalm 22 mm -hmm. with the mocking and you know the crying out and casting and of it, lots and and it's not that Jesus is despairing on the cross by saying my oh, god my god important. why yeah. has thou you know forsaken me in the first century the psalms weren't numbered <laughs> as as we know it and so uh if you want to invoke a psalm you open you quoted the opening line of that psalm so Jesus is invoking the entire psalm because the whole psalm is being played out before him. And while he's on the cross, stretched out, you've pierced my hands and my feet. That's one of the lines of the psalm. That's absolutely true for Jesus. And it's interesting, Michael, I like to think of it as imagine this scene. Here's the chief priests, and they think, here's the proof. We're proving by the fact that you're on that cross mm -hmm. that you are not mm -hmm. God's beloved, that you are not the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And we have we have shown you up, we have disproven you. And then Jesus responds to that mocking with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Quoting a psalm of King David, mm -hmm. who is being who is a righteous man and suffering 
unjustly from others who mock at him as he's being pierced and as he's being stripped of his garments and all Mm -hmm. that. And so there's no mocking after Jesus quotes that line. Mm -hmm. And so it's in a sense, it's like Jesus quotes Psalm 22 and it silences his opponents because he's just given a counter argument to their argument that he's not the Messiah by saying, oh yeah, well, what about King David? And the Messiah is anointed king and David was king and David suffered and prayed this psalm, and that's exactly what's happening to me right now. And if you read the rest of the psalm, the the psalmist is delivered in the psalm, yeah. right? So this is an important detail because so it's sometimes a psalm of trust, people, uh, yes. abandonment of faith, right? Yeah, some some people read this scene in the Gospels of Jesus crying out, "My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me?" As you alluded to, they say, "Oh, well, here Jesus, uh, he lost he lost hope in God, or he despaired, or something mm-hmm. like that." Far from it, yeah, right? If you know the rest of the psalm, you know what that Jesus rec- and of course Jesus knows the rest of the psalm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he he expects to be delivered from his suffering as well. So this is not just a, a way of uh, identifying with David. It's also in a way a kind of prophecy, right? He is going to be delivered. This is not the end of the story. Yeah, that's so important. And so that just changes the way you hear that line of our Lord. Uh, and that's why it's so important to understand what St. Jerome said, that ignorance of scripture, and he's thinking mm-hmm. of the Old Testament, because mm-hmm. he wrote that in the beginning of his uh, prologue to his commentary on Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Jesus Christ. If we don't know the scriptures of Israel, we can't understand the things that Jesus does or the things that he says. We can't understand these words and deeds of our Lord unless we read them in the backdrop of the scriptures of Israel. And once we do, all of a sudden it takes on a deeper meaning. And all of a sudden there's all kinds of things going on here, like the casting of lots, which is echoing Psalm 22 and the mocking. And then you begin to see these biblical patterns. And then it leads to your faith being uh, strengthened. Right. I mean, the the implications are huge and uh, we miss them when we don't know the scriptures, right? Mm -hmm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is doing so many things here. One thing that he does is he shows us that the psalm is ultimately about him, right? And so what the church does in her practice is reads the psalms throughout the day in what's known as the liturgy of the hours. And following Mm. the scriptures and following Augustine, Paul, the church recognizes that the psalms are ultimately the prayers of Jesus, Mm. right? And so when we pray the liturgy of the hours, what are we doing? We're in a way horning in, right, mm. on that conversation between the Father and the Son, and we're invited to be taken up into it. Now, we go on to read some uh, some of the bystanders hearing Jesus say this. And now, of course, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Some people mishear this, and they think he's calling on Eli, Elijah, right? And so uh, they go to give him something to drink, And they say, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Now, Elijah was expected to come in in the age of Israel's restoration and deliverance. According to the prophet Malachi. Exactly. And also in Sirach, right? And so uh, people are now wondering, are we going to see some great act of deliverance here? And of course, they're not. They're not going to see some great act of deliverance. Jesus is going to go all the way and give himself totally in death Mm -hmm. for us. And he yields up his spirit, and here he he dies. You know, one of the questions people will ask, Michael, is what does it mean that it's the sixth hour all the way to the ninth hour? What what hours are those in our time? Right. So this would be from noon to three. 
Okay, from noon and, to three. Yeah, and that's why three p.m. then is the hour of mercy, as we mm-hmm. talk about it—the hour that right. Jesus dies and gives Himself up for us. And it's so—I don't want to go too long, but let me just say: in Jesus's day, every day in the temple, they would offer a sacrifice that was associated with atonement. And they would offer that at the morning, nine o'clock, and they would offer it in the evening. Well, in Jesus' day, that got moved up to three o'clock. So the very hour of Jesus' death is the hour where the priests are asking for God to forgive Israel's sin and to show mercy on his people. So the idea of three o'clock is the hour of mercy is deeply anchored in, in, in first century Judaism. All right. So um, we read that Jesus dies. And I should say, there are also many allusions here to the book of wisdom of Solomon. So we read the people say, if you are the son of God, mm-hmm. he said he's the son of God. In wisdom of Solomon too, yeah. we read, Such he calls himself chapter. a child of the Lord, boasts that he boasts that he is his father, right? And so they mock the righteous. In Matthew 27, they say, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. In wisdom too, we read, let us test what will happen at the end of his life. That's what the wicked say about the righteous. In Matthew 27, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, the bystanders at the cross say, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God and wisdom too. The, the people who mock the righteous say, for if the righteous man is God's son, he will help him and will deliver him from the hand of his enemies. And in, in Matthew 27, we read that Jesus is derided and mocked and uh, reviled. In Wisdom 2, we read, let us test him with torture and insult. Mm. We have them blasphemy, uh, we have blasphemy in Matthew 26, blasphemy. Um, anyway, so there are lots of parallels between uh, I think that's such a striking uh, prophecy that Wisdom chapter 2 really shows what happens, that the wicked aren't happy in their wickedness alone. That when the wicked pursue wickedness, they despise those who are righteous because they become a, a, a confrontation to them and an affront, and they are like a conscience mm-hmm. that remind them of their sins and that they're strained. And so you see that this prophecy of wisdom too being fulfilled with Jesus here is really, really striking to me. And I think a lot of even good Protestant brothers and sisters don't see that connection because they don't have wisdom mm-hmm. in their Old Testament. That's right. right? Because it's one of the seven Deuterocanonical books that Luther took out of the Bible, out of the Protestant Bible. And so they miss a very important way in which Jesus's um, passion here with the onlookers and those who are mocking him are, are fulfilling uh, the prophecy of wisdom, chapter two. Mm-hmm. And we also see lots of parallels with the trial narrative. So we have at the tr- trial narrative, they mm. accuse Jesus of blasphemy, same thing at the cross. We have false witnesses claim that Jesus threatened to destroy the temple and rebuild in three days. It's repeated again by the bystanders of the cross. We have in the trial narrative, they say, are you the Christ? The Caiaphas, the high priest says, mm. are you the Christ, son of God? At the crucifixion, they say, if you are the son of God, we have the same people, the chief uh, in the trial narrative, we have the Caiaphas, the high priest, the scribes, the elders. Likewise, at the cross, we have the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders. And we have, are you the Christ? And Jesus is the king of Israel here. So lots of similarities. And as we move forward, then what happens is lots of apocalyptic type signs now are recounted by Matthew. We read that the curtain of the temple is mm. torn in two from top to bottom. 
And there's Which a shows divine bit of, agency, the idea that it's from the top, because it'd be 50 feet high. Right, that's right. Um, and it was very difficult. Well, so there's a little bit of ambiguity here. There were lots of veils in the temple, so we don't know for sure which veil this was, although it seems likely it's the veil that separates the holy place and the holy of holies. Uh, and then we read that the tombs were opened. And this is only in Matthew's gospel. Because there's a great earthquake. There's a great earthquake. The rocks are split. The tombs are opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, uh, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is a really weird scene. So we don't understand exactly how to interpret this because we see that it says they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. So... Um, is 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 this happening right at the moment of Jesus's uh, death? One scholar sp speculates that this is what the Roman centurion saw, that the Roman centurion in, in a way had a vision. And he shows that the tearing of the temple veil is linked with visions in the second temple period. Hmm. Uh, and so the way it's written is a little bit unclear, but either way, the point is what happens at the end of time right, is going to be the resurrection of the dead. Jesus's death is an event of such earth-shattering significance. It anticipates what is going to happen at the end of time, right? The righteous will, raise, will be raised from the dead. Also, the tearing of the temple veil at Jesus's death points us to the idea that the temple is going to be destroyed as a result of the, the crime of innocent blood being spilled, Jesus's death. And we read that the, um, when the centurion and those who were with him, uh, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, maybe they saw this vision of people coming out of the tombs, we don't know exactly what, uh, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. And now we have the Gentiles recognizing the identity of who Jesus is, which is going to point forward to the Gentile mission of the church, which... Jesus commissions the apostles to go out and baptize all nations at the end, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there. No, and how appropriate that he, he comes to this faith, this vision of Jesus after watching him suffer. Right. And so the cross, yeah. as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Nice. Mm -hmm. And so you see that already the first fruits mm. of Jesus's passion and death is bringing about faith. And then in verse 55, we have there... Uh, were also many women there looking on from a distance mm -hmm. who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. There she is. Yeah. The same woman who asks mm -hmm. that her sons would sit, one at his right and one at his left when he comes into his kingdom, was there to see Jesus enter into his kingdom. And at this point, I think she realizes... Mm -hmm oh my, that's what I was asking for. Or at least that understanding yeah. would have come upon her after the resurrection. Yeah, those on his right and his left were two thieves crucified. So right. In Christian art, we there. often think it's John the Baptist and Mary, because mm -hmm. that's the way it's depicted. Yeah. But that's because we just think of the kingdom in terms of glory. We mm -hmm. don't recognize that we enter into the kingdom now mm -hmm. through suffering. What is the kingdom? Thomas Aquinas basically says, the kingdom is that realm in which all things are subjected to the rule of God and Christ. And we, we see that in 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 our willingness to die, right? And mm -hmm. willingness to suffer, we enter into that kingdom because we are willing to put ourselves under Christ's rule fully. 
We read, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And the next, well, okay, so yeah, we'll that, leave there. Yeah, leave off there. Go ahead. And, and that, that's an important point because, you know, first off, it's a new tomb. And what would typically happen in a first century Jewish tomb, and I, I'm, I'm so struck by north of Megiddo, uh, they were clearing a road and they found a first century tomb. They found several actually. And, uh, and I've been in that tomb. I have a picture but, of it. Yeah. You can take a look at it. All right, it, you yeah. got the picture of it. Great. I took up this picture when we were there. When we were there. Perfect. <laughs> and it's got a large stone that you roll in front of the, the tomb and then you can't get in. And on the picture from the road, you, it looks like there's a window. And that actually wasn't a window originally. Mm. Uh, when they were scraping the, the hill for the road to widen it, they actually opened up a window into the tomb, mm -hmm. right? That was a little chamber in the tomb. And when you go into this tomb, you'll see that there's there's a place where you can lay out a body. So, you know, an, a bench, you know, where you can lay out a whole body. But then there's little alcoves where you would put the um, alabaster or stone uh, jars that you would put the bones. And so the idea is you would lay out a body after it decomposed You'd gather up the bones and put them in an ostuary, mm -hmm. which is a stone box. It's like box. a bone box. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you put all the bones in that stone box and you put it there because it wasn't just, um, caves were rare. They were extremely expensive. That's why it's important that Joseph is a, is a rich man. And for people who were buried in a, in a cave, you would uh, have that large bench to stretch out, have somebody, a body there where you could anoint it and have that there. But then you'd go back much later after the decomposition of the body, and you take the bones, put them in an ostuary, and that ostuary wouldn't take up much space. So the idea is that you would have 10, 20, 30, 40, you'd have a whole extended family in a particular cave. And that's why it's significant that it's a new mm -hmm. tomb, because there's no other bodies or bones in that tomb. And that's really important detail. Right. So there's no confusion, right? right. When, when the, the tomb's, tomb's empty, empty. <laughs> it's empty. Exactly. Right. Very important detail. And of course, this also fulfills the scripture that the suffering servant yeah, would Isaiah be 50. laid in the, Three. the tomb of the... Yeah. So, he'll, be, he'll be buried with the rich. Right. And so it mentions that he'll have a tomb with the rich at the end of Isaiah 53 when the suffering servant is... is um, when dies. That's right. And uh, and so Jesus fulfills that. So he fulfills perfectly the scriptures. Right. And and the most extraordinary and yet small details. Right. And it is interesting. The beginning of the gospel, you have a man named Joseph mm. who is there to take care of the helpless Jesus. And at the end of the gospel, mm. we have a man named Joseph who's there to provide for Jesus. So I, yeah, I love that image, Michael, because you know Saint Ephraim writes in a beautiful poem that Joseph, Mary's Joseph, is there as a witness to the, the virgin womb, that Jesus enters into the world through the virgin womb. And now Jesus is going to resurrect through the virgin tomb mm -hmm. of Joseph of Arimathea, and Joseph will be a witness to the, uh, to the tomb being sealed. Mm -hmm. That's and, right. All right. Um, so should we, have we finished Matthew 27? Should we talk about Matthew 28? The, the, uh, well, and then there's a, a guard put on the oh, tomb. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, so that is true. Very important um, detail. Mm -hmm. So they'll they'll uh, they'll send a guard, and they go to Pilate that next day. Um, 
and pilot will send soldiers and guards and that'll set us up with chapter 28. But here we, we kind of come to the end of Jesus's passion and death. And let's just look at the big picture. You know, obviously the, the biggest themes that are repeated here, mm-hmm. one is blood all the way through. Yeah. Blood, you know, uh, the blood of the innocent, uh, you know, Judas even throws, this is blood money with the, the coins. And then we have Jesus's own blood on the cross, right? Mm-hmm. So Jesus sheds his blood and there's a, a sacrificial cultic element to that blood. Right. Um, and because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice right. to atone for sin, which is what all of the animal sacrifices were pointing to in the old, in the temple. Yeah, and it's it is very significant that uh, what happens with Jesus on the cross is um, when he dies on the cross, he's fulfilling what we read about at the very beginning of the gospel, Matthew one. Why why is he named Jesus? Right, the name Jesus means well, in the popular etymology of its day of Jesus's day, the Lord saves. Right, Jesus' name is basically Joshua. Um, and in his name, he sums up his mission. He sums up all salvation history. That the Lord will save his people. And many people, like Barabbas, would have expected the Messiah to have accomplished that mission through the sword, through military conquest. What Jesus teaches us is the way that the mission of God saving his people is accomplished is not by taking the lives of others, but by giving his life, right? And yes, we have the sacrificial imagery, but the sacrificial imagery is ultimately meant to highlight Jesus's great love for us. So what ultimately redeems us is that Jesus says in Matthew 20, the son of man comes to give his life as a ransom for many. And that language of ransom, lutron in the Greek, is a term that's associated with atonement. Christ brings about the definitive atonement. He pays for the, he pays the price, if you will, of our sins. Well, there's another bookend. You mentioned Joseph and Joseph. And so, mm-hmm. of course, Joseph in the, in the beginning, in chapter one, is told by the angel, you know, you'll name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Right. So the blood is saving from sins. But then the other key thing that keeps getting repeated is Jesus' kingship. Mm-hmm. You know, he's mocked as a king, mocked as a king, and that's to remind us he is the king. He's crowned with thorns, the title on the cross is king of the Jews. So this kingship stands, uh, really looms large over the passion narrative. Mm-hmm. And so you've got the blood of the sacrifice, but the kingship's also important for how he redeems Israel. You wanna mm-hmm. speak to that? I have the importance of kingship for redemption? Yeah, well, what we want to recognize at the end of the day is that Christ is the one who rules, right? He's the one who is calling the shots all throughout the narrative, right? As we saw at the beginning of chapter 26, he announces his passion is going to happen, and then he sets it into motion. And so the point that the gospel wants to make is, yes, Jesus is the king. He is the one that was expected. Uh, He is the Messiah. He's from the line of David because he's the adopted son of Joseph, and adopted sons receive the legal genealogy of their their father. But even more than this, he is the Lord. He is the, the, the Lord, which is a term that's used for human kings. It's also a term that's used for, for God. And as we've seen, Jesus uses that expression, Lord, Lord, in reference to himself. And that double Lord, Lord in the Greek version of the Old Testament is only applied to the God of Israel. And so the key idea is in all of this, Jesus 
is in control. Jesus has a plan. If you're Mary Magdalene, if you're the disciples, if you're Peter, it mm. seems like you've entered into chaos, into darkness. It seems like God is no longer uh, in control. In control. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we experience that in our own lives. And um, I remember one very, very fateful Good Friday, uh, my wife and I experienced, my wife experienced a miscarriage. Mm. And it happened on Good Friday of all mm. days. Or, uh, and it was so hard to, mm. to ask our Blessed Mother for her prayers, because I'm thinking, please save the life of my son or you know, my child, and yet you were willing uh, to to go with God's plan, mm. which involved him taking your son from you. Mm. And uh, that's just a microcosm though, right? There's so many experiences in our life where we feel as if we're entering into that Good Friday, but we have confidence that he is king and he can't be voted out of office. <laughs> you know, and that gets, I think the, the third thing that comes out in the Passion Narrative is that the scriptures are being fulfilled, that mm -hmm. God the Father has a plan of salvation. And so whether it's, you know, the, the casting of lots, the mocking of Jesus on the cross, all these little details have already been prefigured. And so David himself, that first great king of the line of David, David himself went through mocking and suffering. And he was a righteous man who suffered from those who were the leadership of Israel, from King Saul. And so what we see here is that this suffering doesn't invalidate Jesus as being the king of Israel, but it actually becomes the badges that prove that he is the authentic king of the line of David right. and the righteous sufferer who will atone for sin. And so that when we do have tragedy and suffering and death here is a great tragedy, uh, God in his providential love is able to redeem it with resurrection. And that's what we're going to see right. in the next episode. And how are we supposed to interpret the events that happen in our lives? Through the lens of the scriptures, right? Mm. Matthew's showing us the way to understand what's happening to Jesus is to mm. go through the scriptures. If you don't know the scriptures, you'll be left to drift in your life. You won't know how to interpret mm. the things that are happening to you. And this is what Matthew, I think, wants us to also learn. That's so important, Michael. And I hope that you take that message to heart and open up your scriptures, reread these passages, go back and read Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant song. Go back and read Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, and you'll see that all these difficult things were foreshadowed and foretold. And so no suffering, even the greatest suffering of the most innocent person of all, is beyond God's plan to redeem and vindicate. And that's our hope. And that's the hope we'll see in our next lesson. So next time, we're going to cover Matthew chapter 28 and the conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew. So thank you for being with us and persevering through this story of Jesus. We know this is a very long Bible study, but it's such a great story. It's the greatest story ever told, and it's a story that you are invited to participate in. May the Lord bless and keep you. You can watch this Bible study in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustine Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, e-books, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustine Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.